welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Sunday School by Chris Wiley on January 8th, Lord's Day Service. resisting totalitarianism, as I just told you. Uh, And if there's a political phenomenon that should be resisted, that's it. But what are we resisting exactly? Allow me to begin with uh, the seminal text on spiritual warfare in the New Testament. That's Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. Here the Apostle Paul says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not uh, wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm." Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the, bre- uh, the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert, with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And all we're told here that uh, this, we struggle with spiritual forces, not with flesh and blood. And this is odd to consider in the context of a discussion on totalitarianism, because totalitarians maintain, without exception, and it's a long story, but I won't get into it, that there really isn't anything but flesh and blood. Invariably, they're materialists. And they think that human beings are nothing more than machines made of meat. By the way, that phrase or that term, machines made of meat, is not mine. Uh, Marvin Minsky, who teaches at MIT, one of the most prestigious institutions in the world, refers to you and me as machines made of meat. What we refer to as consciousness, according to these people, is an illusion, or at best secondary, not real in the same sense that our bodies are. Uh, Consciousness is what they refer to as an epiphenomenon, epiphenomenal, just a byproduct of our chemistry. If you thought that people were machines made of meat, ethics would take on a whole different character from what we normally consider to be the case. Good would be whatever makes the machine run better, or at least according to the uh, design of the person who would like to use the machine for his or her own end. And assuming that that there is all there is to it, then human beings would be defined merely as stimulus response mechanisms. Stimulate, get a response. By the way, B.S. Skinner, uh, the father of behaviorism, uh, essentially uh, defined human beings that way he, he, had a, he, he wrote a couple of charming books. One was entitled Beyond Freedom and Dignity. <laughs> Gives you an idea how he thought about human beings and about life and the good life. And he wrote another book called Walden II, which was based on Thoreau's Walden, you know, book Walden, which I guess you'd call Walden I. But Walden II, uh, instead of being an, a sort of a reflection on uh, self-reliance, which is what Thoreau was up to with Walden, uh, it's, a, it's a reflection on a communal ex- uh, approach to a kind of behaviorist way of thinking about human beings. I remember some of you have read my book, uh, The Purloin Boy. I had, a, I had a, uh, someone who reached out to me years ago. It's a, it's a fantasy novel, dystopian. And he said, were you writing about my, my childhood? And uh, he said, I grew up in a community inspired by Walden too, by B.F. Skinner. And I said, no, I wasn't doing it so explicitly, but yeah, I, <laughs> I kind of was. I was kind of writing about that kind of way of uh, organizing a community and thinking. Um, anyway, 
This way of thinking, by the way, is what gave us the concentration camps. The camps were laboratories dedicated to modifying behavior, not punishing free moral agents. That's an important thing to know. If you want to explore what they were really up to in the camps, read Hannah Arendt's The Origins of Totalitarianism. She uh, did all the work digging into the documents of the Nazis and interviewing people who had been in the gulags. They weren't trying to punish anybody. They were just trying to, they were experimenting on people to modify the way they thought and behaved. Now, the camps were crude by modern standards or contemporary standards. We might do a better job, and indeed, I think they're trying. <laughs> I think uh, many of the things that we see going on around us are efforts to modify our behavior or nudge us in certain directions. You may have heard that term, nudge. That's actually related to that. Anyway. Uh, it's all terribly wrong, of course. We know that, and it still is. We're not machines. We're essentially spiritually, are spiritual in nature. We dwell in our bodies. You could even say we're clothed in them. Now, we have to be careful here because uh, we might otherwise stumble <coughs> into, <coughs> pardon me, uh, something equally hazardous known as Gnosticism, <coughs> the air that denies the goodness of our bodies. But the thing I'm trying to preserve here is the doctrine of a real presence, that there's more to you than your body. Your essential self is spiritual and beyond the reach of scientific instruments. That's the real you. You are more than meets the eye. Ironically, the totalitarian state is more than meets the eye, too. And that's what Paul is telling us in Ephesians. Political orders <clears throat> have machine-like characteristics, just like human bodies. We can talk about a human body and say it's like a machine, but we're just using this as a metaphorical way of addressing something that's not a machine or speaking of it. Uh, but there's more to the machinery of the state than we uh, can see with our eyes. There's something that's out of view and that something more is what we're really up against when we're talking about a totalitarian regime. It's not just the regime. Each of us know that we're more than meets the eye because we have inside information. I live in me. I know there's more to me than meets the eye. And the same is true for you. You know that there's more to you than meets the eye. Thanks. You're suffering through my gargle, I guess. <laughs> Thanks, Drew. <clears throat> um, and because that's so, because we have inside information, and we know that we're more than just simply uh, objects of study, that we're actual subjects ourselves, because that's so, we should be able to entertain the possibility that there are unseen subjects out there in the world, perhaps even in places other than human bodies. The notion has something against it, I'll admit, at least in my experience. Some of the most enthusiastic proponents of this way of looking at the world are less than credible. A few, a few of them appear to be either emotionally or mentally unstable. You can see them on television on Sunday mornings. Uh, others are simply charlatans, just using um, sales techniques to kind of shake people down and get money. But what these people have in common, as far as I can tell, is the tendency to equate a real presence with an overtly supernatural display of power. So what I'd like to propose is that uh, that may be actually um, a wrong a way of thinking and in inferring the, pre uh, the presence of something more than just what you can see. If the theory that I'm about to explain is correct, and materialism is a veil behind which these powers are pursuing their goals, overt supernatural activity is the last thing that they want to do. Allow me to suggest an alternative. We are surrounded by powers, but whose work is both more mundane and more insidious than many of the advocates of spiritual warfare generally maintain. 
So what are these powers up to? They're up to what they've always been up to, distorting reality. John 8, 4, uh, 44 tells us about it. Here Jesus is speaking to his adversaries, and he says, You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. A contemporary term for this is psyops. Familiar with the term psyops? I figured you would be, Drew. <laughs> Modern warfare has gotten more subtle as the stakes of direct conflict have gone up. There are so, so many nuclear weapons in the world today uh, that we have the power to destroy our civilization several times over. Because of that, honest, overt military action runs the risk of escalating into something really insane. And consequently, less direct methods have been developed to weaken enemies and perhaps even cause political orders to collapse from within. The term for this is psychological operations, as I noted, psyops. I've given this talk a couple of times, and each time I've given it, there's been a guy who came up to me and said, I've been involved in psyops. I've you know, worked for the government. I've been in the military. You, what you described is exactly what's going on. Now, uh, according to Wikipedia, PSYOPs are, quote, any action which is practiced mainly by psychological methods with the aim of evoking a planned psychological reaction in other people. So you're doing it to get a response, a sp response that you want someone to make. The entry in Wikipedia goes on to say that those methods, quote, target value systems, emotions, motives, reasoning or behavior, end quote. Now this should sound familiar to any student of the Bible. It's the primary method used by dark spiritual forces in their war against the Creator. We see it in the Garden of Eden and in the wilderness temptations of Jesus and everywhere in between. And each of us has experienced it personally. And that means we shouldn't think of spiritual warfare in terms of supernatural pyrotechnics. We know that the real battle happens in private, often inwardly, during dull, mundane, the dull, mundane course of your daily life. Unseen principalities and powers, which Paul mentions, do their worst primarily by distorting our perceptions of reality. What was the temptation in the garden? A distortion of God's character. God does not want you to be like him. That's why he's told you not to take the fruit. Impugning malintent to the command. Psyops. You may have heard the term knowledge is power. It's a truism that people are familiar with. It comes from Francis Bacon, which, by the way, I came across this. I, I, every time I think about this, I can't, I can't help but laugh because I, I remember this particular thing I read. There was a guy uh, who, was, who heard the term uh, Francis Bacon uh, following you know, knowledge is power because Francis Bacon is a, was a, one of the, uh, basically, the, the architects of the empirical method when it comes to science. And he's been attributed, he's been, that statement, knowledge is power, is attributed to him. There's been some debate as to whether or not that's actually what he said. But anyway, uh, everybody says, knowledge is power, Francis Bacon. There was this guy who thought that what meant France is bacon. <laughs> so what he would think about when he said, France is bacon, France is bacon. Anyway, now you'll never forget it. <laughs> but uh, knowledge is power isn't the whole truth. But when it comes to totalitarians, that's all they want to know. That's all they want to know. One of the reasons why totalitarians have zero interest in God is because the more you know about God, what happens? The more you are subject to his control. Exact opposite of what they're up to, what they want. Anyway, I could go, go into that uh, in more depth, but I won't right now. You'll have to wait to the book for the book. But this is precisely the kind of knowledge that Silicon Valley generates. 
The thing to keep in mind with totalitarians is they want to know about you, not in the sense that your spouse or friends know you, which is a different kind of knowledge, but just about you without divulging anything about themselves. When it comes to how Silicon Valley operates, for example, we can liken it to a two-way mirror. You know what a two-way mirror is, right? On one side, you see yourself. On the other side, there's a window. There are people there looking out at you, looking at yourself. You pick your teeth, maybe do something embarrassing. They're sitting behind there looking at you. <laughs> That's how the internet works. That's how Google operates. That's how they gather all that information that they're gathering about you and me in order to sell products and win elections. That's how it works. So from your side of the mirror, it's all about you. But uh, from their side of the mirror, it's all, all about you. You don't know anything about them or what they're up to or what they're doing with the information that they gather. But behind them, I, and I believe unknown to them, there are unseen actors who are pursuing a different agenda. We're about to step into something that I will deal with in some detail in my book, but, uh, and I don't have the time to fully develop it here, but, in, you know, but I will uh, leap forward into the subject of resistance, which I will be talking in the, about in the book, and, and uh, some strategies for doing that. Paul's image of a man in armor is predicated on the notion that a Christian is subject to attack. I don't think we appreciate this. We don't tend to think about our lives in this sense much at all. Being a Christian means you're a target. It's just that simple. You're subject to attack. And that the Christian life is a life of resistance. We're supposed to stand our ground, verse 11, and withstand in the evil day and stand firm, verse 13, and were to stand, therefore, just stand, you know, take it, uh, in verse 14. Truth, really quite logically, is where to begin when you're resisting schemes of the devil and his psyops. To resist psyops, psychological operations that are intended to undermine the truth, we need the truth, so we need to stand and live in it. Now, living in the truth begins with repentance. Perhaps this strikes you as a change of subject from the cognitive realm of truth to the effective realm of sorrow. But our contemporary understandings of repentance place emotion in the driver's seat and put our minds in the back seat. According to 18th century thinkers like David Hume and, yes, even Jonathan Edwards, feelings drive behavior. That's why uh, Edwards... Uh, titled a book, Religious Affections. It was all about how affections drive our behavior. Uh, instead of thinking, and by the way, that's what gave us revivalism and Pentecostalism. It's, not a, it's, not, um, it's also the same sort of, sort of intellectual, sort of social milieu uh, with, with, uh, with regard to the romantic movement. Romanticism was sort of part of that as well. Um, but this uh, way of thinking is a long way away from both the classical and biblical ways of thinking about repentance. The Greek word that we translate into the English word repent didn't mean feeling sorry for your sins or even changing how you live. It meant literally changing your mind. The word is metanoia, which literally means afterthought or after thinking about it, or even thinking again, as when you say to yourself, what was I thinking? when you regret doing something stupid. You repent. You start thinking again. Of course, you regret your foolishness and change your course of action, things we normally associate with repentance, but first there's a change of mind. The cart of feeling and action follows the horse of thought. The first thing to do when you start thinking again is confess. Now, confession has two sides. The first is telling the truth about how wrong you've been. Uh, this is generally what comes to mind when people use the word, you know, like when you say to a kid who's stolen some cookies, fess up now, tell the truth. We want you to own, we want you to tell us uh, about what you did. But uh, the other, there's another side of it. It uh, 
also means you confess the truth that you've come to see as true. Sometimes it's called a confession of faith. When a person is received into membership, uh, often we'll refer to them giving a confession of faith. This is what I now believe. Uh, you might try to put it into your own words, and that's fine. We ought to. Uh, but ultimately, what you're trying to do is put reality into words, not your own experience. This is one of the big problems that people have when they are sort of thinking through matters. When it comes to a testimony, what are you testifying to? Your experience or the truth? should be testifying to the truth. And the creeds and the confessions have been handed down to us so that we can do a good job of that. And that's why we repeat them. Now, learning to think again takes time, and the process is one that includes the entire self. Uh, it begins with our heads, but it also works down into the recesses of our bodies. And this is how Paul describes it in Romans 12, verses 1 through 3. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the English uh, Standard Version. Uh, and it's a fine translation in every respect, but uh, a really important one. <laughs> the phrase spiritual worship is misleading. Spiritual in contemporary English doesn't refer to the mind. It's generally understood to relate to our emotions. But the word translated here into the word spiritually actually did refer to the mind. It's the word logicon. Maybe that sounds familiar. It's the basis of our English word logic. Our worship should be reasonable then. And that's exactly what the King James Version uh, says when it translates logicon in the way it does. It uses the term reasonable worship as opposed to spiritual worship. And even the, uh, the NIV, the New International Version, for all of its shortcomings, does a better job here of translating logicon with the phrase true and proper. The thing worth stressing, though, is the connection between worship, understanding truth, and our bodies. All these things connect. Now, what does this have to do with resistance? The problem is people don't know themselves as well as people on the other side of the glass, people who observe us in action or spiritual forces who do. So the first step in freeing yourself from their control is to know yourself better than they do. That, that should include knowing your sins, your weaknesses, of course, but also knowing your dependencies. What you ought to know is your tender spots, your, weak, your weaknesses. Know where the thumbscrews could be applied to you. Now, thumbscrew is, a, is a, uh, an image of a, of a device that's intended to get you to go along with the will of somebody else, right? A thumbscrew uh, is a, a, a device that you, you know, your thumb gets put in and then the screw gets turned down and it hurts. And the purpose, of course, is to get you to say, please stop, I'll do anything you want. <laughs> and there are many uh, ways that uh, thumbscrews can be applied to you and me in civilized and uh, bloodless ways. So let's look at uh, some thumbscrews and obvious ways that those can be applied to us to get us to capitulate. And then also think about ways to remove them. So uh, the first thumbscrew I'd like to consider is financial security. The most powerful thumbscrew for most people is their livelihood. Threaten that, even hint at it, and uh, most people will fold like a lawn chair. Whatever you want. <laughs> uh, you, you can sign me up. I'm on board. At the best, you know, people will just kind of shut down, keep their thoughts to themselves, just kind of passively go along. Maybe passive-aggressive, but <laughs> get carried along by the agenda uh, that uh, is being pursued by whoever signs their check. Right? Now, this can happen in all sorts of environments, not just you know, large corporations. It can happen in homes when grandma 
and says, if you don't go along with me, there's no inheritance for you. She might not put it quite that way, but uh, you get the message at times. Uh, it can happen in churches. When in denominations you see a theological drift and you wonder where are all the pastors, why don't they stand up uh, and uh, take a strong stand against this particular, um, you know, this particular heresy or tendency or thing that's developing that's morally objectionable? Well, sometimes it's simply because they've got mortgages to pay. I hate to tell you that, <laughs> but that's really the way it is. And so we've seen entire denominations that have gone down for this reason. Uh, in some denominations, the, the two thumbscrews are the thumbscrew for the congregation, which is the building. Most denominations, in most denominations, particularly if ones that you can call connectional, the local congregation doesn't own the building. The denomination owns the building. You want to leave? Fine. You're supposed to be out next Tuesday. <laughs> You're gone. And a lot of congregations, well, my grandmother, she worked hard to, you know, decorate this particular part of the building. My, my grandfather gave a big gift that helped build this place. I can't leave. My family's history is tied up. And that's what happens. The other side is the pastors, the pension program. And they'll let you know in no uncertain terms that uh, if you're not on good terms with the authorities in the denomination, that's gone. So these are the thumbscrews that you can, you can see applied even in ecclesial settings. But you know all about this. You can maybe you know, tell me your own story about how the thumbscrew was applied to you in, at your place of employment not too long ago for whatever reason, whether it was vaccinations or not being, actually, not being willing to actually get on your knees and make the you know, Black Lives Matters pledge. I actually know people, PhDs, who were told, get on your knees, give the pledge, and people did it. So, now, if we're going to stand up to this particular kind of pressure, it helps to be able to stand up on your own financially. Now, it's not possible to control your financial situation entirely. Not even super wealthy people can do that. Really nasty folks can not only take away all your stuff, they can take you and put you someplace you'd rather not go. That happened, you know, not too long ago in different parts of the world. Uh, in the Pacific Northwest, we have a lot of folks who are from uh, the former Soviet Union, uh, Ukrainians and Russians, and very large expat community. The biggest, the biggest church in battleground where I, where I am uh, is the Russian church, over a thousand people. And they're just like the Cubans in Miami. They smell a commie <laughs> a mile away. They, they, they put up the flags, <laughs> watch out for that guy. <laughs> you know, they're just completely super sensitive. And I have a couple of friends whose grandfather was in and out of the gulags for 14 years for preaching the gospel. He would be sent to the gulags for preaching the gospel. He'd be there for three years under the behavior modification program that was being applied. <laughs> He'd get out, immediately go out and start preaching. They'd arrest him and send him back again and again and again. So uh, that sort of thing can happen. But there are, there are many steps between where we are and that. And in the meantime, we can make it harder for them to get at our livelihoods, and that's a good idea. So if possible, develop alternative sources of income, develop redundancies, keep your networks and your back door open, prepare for the worst, don't think too much about the best, <laughs> just get ready for it. Um, another thing you can do uh, is uh, a deal with the thumbscrew of your, of your reputation. Um, social climbers are easy targets and likely ones. And everybody knows somebody who's trying to climb the ladder. It's pretty evident. Uh, and those folks are always afraid that the rungs above them that they want to climb are going to be removed. And uh, they're also afraid that the ladder will be kicked out from underneath them and they'll come crashing down. So. Uh, my recommendation when it comes to this particular matter of, uh, you know, being concerned about your reputation and your ambitions is cancel yourself first. 
So if you cancel yourself before anybody else could cancel you, you've addressed the problem. And uh, one of the things that you can do is die daily. Learn to die daily. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians. He says, uh, and he also in Philippians talks about being willing to be a man of no reputation. In other words, you know, so when, let's just think about this as it relates to social media. When it comes to social media, I, I'm assuming that you're all familiar with it and how it works. Now, you have a choice uh, of putting on Facebook or you know, Instagram at any given time any one of maybe you know, a dozen photographs that were sent to you from an event you attended. What do you do? You go through and look for the one you look best in, right? I do that. <laughs> you don't post the one where you look 30 pounds overweight, right? You don't post the one where you, know, you just obviously are looking goofy. You post the one where you look really, really good, because we're all interested in what? Looking really, really good, looking our best. And there's nothing wrong with that. But uh, what it does is it, it I think, uh, provides us with uh, some vulnerability, because if that becomes the controlling passion of your life, looking good, then any time someone impugns, you know, a malintent or um, accuses you of some wrong, you know, you just will do anything to preserve your reputation. Someone accuses you of, say, being, you know, any number of things that are now politically incorrect to be, you know, your first response is, no, no, that's not true. You know, and then, you know, essentially become, you know, a beggar, begging to be taken back in. This is what happens with cancellation, cancel culture. Uh, I've had a number of friends who've been canceled uh, in different environments, um, particularly within the academic uh, uh, sphere. And um, the only way you can stay free in certain environments like academia is by, uh, be by embracing pariah status. Just be willing to say to yourself and everybody around you, I'm a pariah, and uh, I'm okay with that. In fact, I'm the most cheerful pariah you will ever meet. I got a good sense of humor. I can even admit when I'm wrong. <clears throat> but uh, you're not gonna control me in that way. I remember when I first met Doug Wilson. This is kind of a fun story. Doug is certainly a pariah. And, uh, but uh, I was also kind of a pariah. And I think maybe, you know, because we were both pariahs, <laughs> he invited me out to speak in a, in an event in uh, Moscow. And we went out to eat, and he, and he said to me, you know I got cooties, don't you? What do you mean by that? It means you hang out with me, you get cooties too. And he said, I want you to, and this is, one of, this is one of the ways he really endeared himself to me. He said, I've got a website uh, where I've got it all linked, everything I've ever been accused of. And he sent me the link. And he said, this is my response as well. You know, this is how I defend myself in each of these different cases. And I said, Doug, I don't even need to look at any of that stuff. The fact that you were able to say that to me, I knew that before I went. <laughs> But the fact that you were able to say that to me is all I need. But uh, he's free. He's free to say what's on his mind. Doesn't mean he's always right. Doesn't, like, I'm not always right, you're not always right. But he's free to say what is his, what's on his mind, uh, to be true to his convictions, because he's already embraced rejection. He doesn't sit around all day wondering, is there someone in the world that doesn't like me? He knows. <laughs> he already knows that. He knows there are plenty of people that don't like him. So just accept it. There are going to be people who don't like you. That's one of the ways that you can remove a thumbscrew. Um, another thumbscrew has to do with uh, feelings of abandonment and loneliness and what will become of you if everybody turns on you. I think this is uh, related to the other things I've just described, you know, losing your livelihood, becoming a pariah. Next thing follows, you're completely all alone. Well, um, a couple of thoughts. One of the ways that you can remove that thumbscrew is just expect betrayal. 
Don't be surprised by it. People will betray you. And Jesus tells you that. So this shouldn't be a surprise, right? There are going to be people who turn on you, and they're going to be some of the closest people to you. Family, friends, people that you, set, you, you, would, have, you would have thought, oh, they, they'll never uh, let me down. Next thing you know, they're turning you into the Stasi <laughs> or, the, or the Gestapo, you know, <laughs> you know, you know, saying, don't take me, take him, take her. That'll happen. What you need uh, is a community of dissidents, a group of people who are also, uh, you know, been betrayed, have cooties. <laughs> and uh, what you need to do is get close to those folks. Um, now, I wish I could say that the typical church qualifies, but it doesn't. And it's partly because the church has lost its identity as a community of dissidents. And more recently, it's led by men and sometimes women with, you know, moistened fingers. You know what I'm talking about. Got their finger to the wind, trying to figure out where the cultural winds are blowing so they can set their sails and have the next big thing. Happens all the time. Um, and those folks tend to consider people like I, I just described, pariahs and dissidents, as uh, problematic and unloving because they've just, you know, just determined that they're going to stand uh, for what they believe in and face the consequences. Now, to identify uh, a dissident church, uh, it's helpful to have a, a litmus test. Now, COVID was really helpful for that. I don't know if you've noticed this, but um, it was a kind of a mini apocalypse. Like when you hear the word apocalypse, you probably think end of the world, you know, meteors falling to earth, cities in flames. Apocalypse actually means revelation, unveiling. So there were things that were true all along that you couldn't see. And then there's the, the, the moment when the veil is pulled back and you see things as they truly are. And what was the case in, in, in many of our lives is that there were people who uh, were utterly dependent upon the authoritative narratives um, and church leaders were often unquestioning and even intolerant of anyone who did question uh, and as a result um, there are many people who find themselves kind of churchless because of this whole uh, development and one of the interesting things to kind of observe as I've, fought, I've, I've been watching this, every church that defied the mandates is growing across the country, everywhere I go. And, that, and the churches that were most compliant are dying. Everywhere I've gone. You know, it's just it's been, been you know, kind of uh, amazing. To, to see, but anyway, um, I think. But I, I think that that's the only part of the story. You know, we could talk about wokeism. We could talk about other things. But now, I, I do think we need to keep in mind uh, something, and that is, some of the folks who went along are starting to have their own doubts, and they might come along. So we shouldn't completely shut them out. Um, you know, in the early church, when persecutions occurred, and there were clergy who actually handed over the scriptures to be burned, um, they would later be repentant. And there were two kind of ways of thinking about them, as you can imagine. <laughs> there were some folks who said, no, that's it. You're out. And then there were others who said, you know, we need to be gracious. We need to, you know, acknowledge that we're all weak. We have our bad moments. We're like Peter. You know, sometimes we don't stand up when we know we should. And then later, of course, in Peter's case, not only was Peter crucified, according to tr tradition, he was crucified upside down. He said, I'm not worthy to die the same way. So people can change, and so we have to keep that in mind and keep our hearts open. Now, um, 
I've, no, I've noted just three different ways that thumb screws can be applied to us in sort of the situation that we find ourselves in before it gets really bad. And I'm hopeful that, it, that it, this is all we'll need to think about. I hope that it never gets as bad as it could get. But uh, we know that that's not the case. There have been many places and many times in the history of the world where things got really, really bad. So what do we do then? Um, Paul here, when he is writing about the, the armor of God, is himself in prison. <laughs> and um, he says, having done all, stand firm. So after you've done everything you can do, after you've you know, developed multiple sources of income and have developed some financial independence and then that's been taken from you, and after you've, your reputation is completely shot and you've got nowhere to go and you're just kind of like in this catacomb somewhere with a few other dissidents, what then? Stand firm. Just stand firm. Now I'm going to look at, well, how are we doing on time here? Oh, I've got about 10 minutes. Um, I'm going to look, just look at, uh, because time's short, uh, the first and last of Paul's tactics for standing firm. He begins with the truth, verse 14, and he ends with prayer. So I want to talk about truth and prayer. And I want to elaborate br uh, briefly on two things that I believe are implied here. The first has to do with virtue, and the second, how virtue is informed by prayer. So Paul calls for firmness. Specifically, he refers to or says, uh, with regard to the truth, loins girt about with truth. Girding your loins not only implies firmness, it also implies manliness. The modern gloss, belt of truth, doesn't actually convey the same notion. And that's because loins include what makes a man a man. If you have any questions about that, just look up Genesis chapter 35, verse 11. There's a direct reference to it, and I'm not making it up. <laughs> so, um, I'm reminded of another passage, one that's even less politically correct. Be watchful, stand firm. In the faith, act like men, be strong. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13. There the word translated act like men in the ESV, what the uh, KJV, King James Version, translates as quit like men, is andrazizomai, uh, uh, or manly. And that brings another word to mind, this time from the Latin, the word virtus, which also means manly, and also happens to be the origin of our word virtue. So here are a set of associations that I think we should explore because they have to do with the man in armor. Truth and firmness and by extension manliness and virtue. Truth is firm. And it's what makes a man a man and able to withstand pressure, being firm. But how does it happen? Virtue works through a hierarchy. Now, we can see the hierarchy in the cardinal virtues, of which there were four, or are four. The first three are prudence, temperance, and justice, and the last is courage, sometimes referred to as fortitude. Now, courage is last, but it's also first and second and third, because courage accompanies all the other virtues because each of them require virt uh, courage to be exercised. You need to have courage to have prudence. You need to have courage to be temperate. You need to be be courageous to, to uh, execute justice. You need courage in each case. Um, sometimes the virtues, these virtues, these four are referred to as the cardinal virtues, and that's because the word cardinal actually means hinge or pivot, which means our lives turn on them. You know, what is going to occur in our lives depends on how those virtues are either being exercised or not. Now, prudence doesn't mean prudish or squeamish. Prudence is good judgment. It evaluates possible courses of action and then judges which one is best. And to do that, it needs truth. It needs to be informed by truth. In a virtuous person, prudence puts the affections and the appetites in their places. It rules them, in other words. Think about it this way. In a healthy person, good judgment is on top, like a head. Like a head is on top of a human body. Affections are in, the are in the middle like the heart is in the middle. 
and the appetites are on the bottom, like a stomach and, and our nether regions are on the bottom. Now, if you were to come across a person with a stomach where his head should be and his head where his stomach should be, you wouldn't say, you look marvelous. You'd say, you're a monster, and you'd be right. And a lot of people are governed by what? Their stomachs, by their nether regions. The only thinking they do is in service of the appetites, not the other way around. Good judgment should govern our appetites, direct us. It should also direct our affections. I fell in love. I have no will in the matter. Just swept along. No, you've got a head. You can judge whether or not something is worth having affection for or not. You can put your orders in good, or your affections in good order. You're not just simply driven by your passions. So, if you're going to order yourself well, uh, if you do order yourself well, you're in a better place to resist distortions of reality generated by the principalities and powers. On the other hand, people whose lives are out of order are easy marks. Easy marks. Prayer. I've skipped over the other uh, items listed in the, mar in the armory, uh, but I've done that in order to focus on the one who gives the armor to us. Anyone familiar with the Aeneid knows that Aeneas received his armor from his mother, Venus. If you've read the story, you know that. And she'd had it made by Vulcan, her long-suffering but very talented husband. And while I can't prove it, I suspect that Paul was familiar with the story. It was a bestseller in Paul's time. And I even think he had it in mind when he wrote the epistle to the Ephesians. But here, Paul describes our armor, given to us by the true God. And at the end, we're told to pray. But prayer is not listed as one of the pieces of armor in our armory. I think that the reason is understandable. Prayers are directed towards God, the one who has given us the armor in order to help us resist the schemes of the devil. But I also think that prayer accompanies the whole of it in the way that courage strengthens the cardinal virtues. Each of the items, each of the things enumerated in that list of items that were given it for our armor should be accompanied by prayer. So, uh, speaking of the virtues, I mentioned the cardinal virtues. There's another set traditionally uh, referred to as uh, the theological virtues because they bring God into everything. And even the cardinal virtues are transformed under their influence. The theological virtues, if you don't already know, are hope, faith, and love. Now, the first two are the uh, fruit of God's promises. We hope for what God has promised because it fulfills longings uh, that we have like nothing else in the world can. We long for a city whose builder and maker is God not the cities of this world, because we know that's where we belong. And we believe the promises because the one who made the promises is truth itself and cannot lie. God simply just cannot lie. God actually has the power to keep his promises, too. Just look at the marvelous universe that we dwell in. It's a display that surrounds us all the time uh, uh, of, and it demonstrates to us that the God we serve is powerful, and uh, is capable of anything. Here's, one, here's an interesting thing. You know, I, I'm, not a, I'm not a physicist. We have one here, maybe more. <laughs> but uh, years ago, uh, the prospect that the universe came into existence out of nothing was considered laughable. The best scientists, leading minds, would laugh if you were to make that case, or, make, or, or state, make that statement that the universe came into being out of nothing. If you were to justify it, saying that God brought all things into being out of nothing, you'd have a, a scriptural warrant for saying that, but people would say there's no scientific basis for that. Actually, today, most scientists, as far as I know, perhaps the details of what they believe are different than what I believe, but they actually do believe that, in effect, everything came out of nothing. So if you hang you know, your, uh, your hat on the current state of the science, <laughs> the 
you might find yourself embarrassed. But anyway, uh, faith is listed in the armory, uh, and it's a shield that protects us from the darts of the devil. And what those darts uh, what, uh, are are diabolical accusations intended to wound and kill our life in God. The devil is known as the accuser in Scripture, and his darts are his accusations. Accusations directed toward God, as we see in Genesis, uh, but that's actually what diabolical means. If you look at the Greek, dia, through, balo, throw, uh, the, the uh, implication is that something is, that is, is diabolical is, uh, in, in effect, uh, seeking to kill you at a distance. That's what the word literally uh, is referring to. So hope and faith encourage us and strengthen the cardinal virtues, but it's likely that hope and faith will pass away someday. Not because we've been disappointed, but because we've been satisfied. After all, who hopes for what he already has? That's Romans chapter 8. And when faith becomes sight, who needs faith anymore? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, Hebrews 11, 1, 1 Corinthians 13, 12. But there is one virtue that remains, the last virtue, which lasts forever because it's the first. We love God because he first loved us and it's by love that we're bound to him and it can strengthen us love can strengthen us and make us firm in our resolve because uh, in fact we have received from God all the things that we need and we love him as a result and because we know that he first loved us we know that we're never alone and even when hell is against us and our friends and family have betrayed us, um, we can stand firm because we know we're not alone. We're never alone. Even when there's no physical presence that can be seen. <clears throat> and this is why we pray to him for help and pray without ceasing because he never ceases to be the source of good things including our ability to stand. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com.